Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. Hey, hello, everybody. It's Eric Klein here. It's March of 2022, and we come to you with our first uh, really fresh episode here of the show uh, of the year. That's an odd thing for us in the going on six years of the uh, of, of the show. Actually, going on seven years of this as a radio show and podcast as we uh, all yeah. sort of work through and adapt to all of our new circumstances <laughs> as sure. it is. I will say this, though. I will say this. As the person who was listening back to old episodes to find out which ones to air because we have still aired every week on mm-hmm. all of Thank our you, Eric. radio stations around the country. So radio listeners uh, have heard uh, a, a few dozen uh, rebroadcasts. And uh, the last, even the last just two years, because that's mostly what I've been drawing from, uh, were very special. Jennifer Waits especially uh, produced a lot of wonderful interviews with cool people, and none of it is irrelevant to today's audience. It was fun. It was fun to rebroadcast all of that stuff. So, um, yeah. And it doesn't really seem like two years ago. I, I mean... Both of you probably feel the same way. It feels like two years have been condensed into one. And so I, I'm, I'm glad I appreciate the work, Eric, in resurfacing these episodes so that people have another opportunity to hear them. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of all the work that we've been doing as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a real archive, and I'm glad that we that we can continue to share it and that people, clearly it sounds like listeners at all of our affiliate radio stations are enjoying it, are taking something away. Um, we have not heard complaints, which is one barometer that I would use uh, in order to provide that uh, reading on the, on the climate here. You know, there's a lot of elephants in the room as we, as we sit here. You know, we'll be talking some about... Um, the Russian invasion and assault on Ukraine from a radio perspective and, you know, catching up on some other radio news here, things that we think are important uh, when thinking about really the value of radio and audio in our lives. But first off, um, we do have International Women's Day coming up uh, very shortly, pretty much the same week as this episode uh, goes to air. Jennifer, um, you were asked to participate um, in, a, in some special programming with with our um, founding affiliate, with the first affiliate of the show, X-Ray Community Radio here in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm on a panel discussion that's going to air as part of X-Ray's Amplify Women um, teaching. And this is actually their fifth year doing this on-air teaching, and it's happening all day on March 8th. And they're actually starting the day with an episode of Radio Survivor from last year, from 2021, celebrating Women in Sound, which featured Jennifer Stover and Jennifer Highland Wong. Hmm. Uh, the trio of Jennifer's episode, as <laughs> we like to think about it. And, you know, bo- both of both of them are scholars who we've had on the show previously, and, and, and that was a real treat. And we had them on in celebration of Women's History Month last year. So I'm really excited and proud that that's kicking off the schedule for the teach-in at Amplify. And, and then, so there'll be a number of different 
on-air discussions that they're holding um, on March 8th. And then people can listen, even if you can't tune in that day, you can listen later. Um, I'm going to be on a panel called Gender Dynamics and Industry Barriers in Podcasting, Broadcasting, and Beyond. And it's being hosted by Morgan Jones, who an X-ray, who is a host at X-ray. And, um, and the other, the other guest is Naomi Shaw, who's the founder and CEO of Meet Cute, uh, which is a really interesting podcasting company that's focused on scripted rom-com podcasts. Mm. So we had a really, really fun discussion. Um, it was great to be part of it. And I think it's pretty incredible that X-Ray is putting together this entire day's worth of programming. I know I know how much work it is just to put on, you know, one episode <laughs> that, um, you know, one hour long episode is a lot of work booking guests and preparing. Uh, so to have, you know, a full day of this kind of programming is quite a bit of work. And, you know, it's part of their effort to recognize women's contributions to radio and also recognize that women's voices are still not the majority of what you hear on the radio. So it's, you know, a, one day a year where they're really, well, they probably try to rectify this every day of the year, mm -hmm. but it's one day where they're really bringing this point home at, um, at X-Ray. That's fantastic. And X-Ray is uh, found on the web at xray.fm and um, here in Portland, Oregon, you can hear them on the radio at 107.1 FM is the strongest signal and also heard, I believe at 91.1 FM. Um, in some parts, they have a very they have a legacy class D ten watt signal, um, in addition to a translator, which allows them to get some uh, greater reach around the Portland metro area. But of course, online at X-ray. Dot FM. Um, don't, don't get us started on the legacy class. Oh, I D. know it's it's I a know. rabbit hole. It's we'll, a rabbit we'll dig, hole. We'll dig it down. We, we've done it before on Radio Survivor. We've talked about the history of that of that. You're touching my college radio heart when yeah. you mention that. Of course, you know, and I'm I'm really um, eager to hear the uh, to hear to hear the show. So, um, yeah. being a professional in the podcasting industry on the advertising side, nevertheless, um, you know, I, it, it, it's really important that we that we really bring down barriers for women and that overall enhance uh, equity and inclusion throughout the industry. It's it's I, I can't stress the importance enough and, and to do so in every aspect from the folks who are on mic behind the mic to the folks who are working behind the scenes uh, in every capacity. So um, I'm, I'm certain I will learn some things. I'm really looking forward to it. And, and again, that'll be on uh, International Women's Day, which is March 8th this year. Um, so thanks, Jennifer, for bringing that to our attention. You know, and, and thinking about radio right now, uh, you know, during this time in which we now have war in, in Ukraine um, and radio is also, you know, there. It's playing a role as it does often when we have crises uh, uh, of all sorts, whether they be natural or human made. Um, and, you know, we've sort of been tracking some efforts that uh, international broadcasters are making to try and, and pitch in a little bit. Information in particular can be especially vital um, for both the, the folks who are in Ukraine and experiencing this attack, as well as for people around the world and, and people of, of Ukrainian diaspora in, in particular to be able to receive information. 
So what we've noted is that uh, Polish Radio 1 is uh, started a Ukrainian language news broadcast on their long wave service, uh, which is a service we don't we've never really had in North America. It's like AM radio, but it's even lower on the dial. And if we think about, you know, uh, the AM radio dial in the U.S. starts at 520 kilohertz. Um, this station is actually on 225 kilohertz. So a, a much smaller number, if you will. Um, and so they are broadcasting uh, these updates, which be, by the nature of long wave go very far um, further than, than an AM radio signal does. In most cases, um, they're airing these updates uh, at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. Central European time. Again, it's just so, so there is a, a news update coming from you know, in the Ukrainian language, because, you know, I think we've noted that uh, there have been attacks on the Ukrainian media from from Russian forces. Um, and, and it seems that in many cases they've been able to stay on the air and stay broadcasting, but they remain obviously in a, in a very precarious position um, with the Russian military uh, advancing on uh, many different cities uh, in, in Ukraine. You know, and as well, the BBC World Service has added two shortwave broadcasts that can be heard in Ukraine as well. They're in English, um, I understand, because that's most of the BBC World Service is in English at this point. But these are on the on the shortwave band as well. And, you know, the thing I, I, I wonder about, <laughs> actually, is um, how widespread shortwave and longwave capable radios are. Um I do understand that long wave has long been uh, included in, in just standard radios in Europe. Like it's not unusual for someone to have a long wave capable radio because more or less, it's basically the same tuner as an AM radio. Like the technology is not any different. And so it's been not uncommon for, uh, for a car radio and other sorts of receivers to include long wave, even if they don't have a short wave band. Right, which is a much larger set set of frequencies. So it seems to me that that might be a special frequency. But you know, Ukraine is 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 not unlike the rest of <laughs> the modern world, where you know lots of people also don't have radios any longer. You know, and so um, I, I mean, I'm certain this is a service in that folks can can uh, find uh, radios and and put them on. But I do think it's sort of a it is sort of a different time here in 2022 than even it would have been at the turn of this century um, with right. regard we, to being able to turn, tune in these broadcasts. I mean, one thing we know from the from from the beginning of the conflict is that um, at least a million people have become uh, have have left their homes and are are on the move. They're refugees, and a lot of them are using cars to travel. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen lines of people who've had to. Uh, stay in their cars for for a number of hours uh, waiting to cross borders so i imagine there's there's a lot of uh, use for radio during that time to spread mm -hmm. to spread useful information yeah especially as folks approach uh, international borders they should be able to receive radio from romania and, and other and other bordering countries um you know some of which you know may be in in uh in, in Russian or another Slavic language uh, that they may be able to uh, understand. And, and obviously uh, quite a few people probably do also understand English, but I, I think that's right. That, that even, you know, in addition to these broadcasts, which are now being 
specifically oriented to uh, Ukraine in response to this uh, crisis, um, you know, it remains an important an important feature, you know, and, and with, with regard to long wave, you know, a station we've talked about in the past is uh, RTE uh, Radio One, which is broadcast out of Ireland on long wave and serves a kind of an Irish diaspora in the UK. And uh, the RTE is the, uh, you know, the state broadcaster in, in Ireland, their public broadcaster. And they wanted to shut down the service because it's expensive to run. It requires a lot of power and a lot of land. Uh, but much of the Irish diaspora throughout the UK, I mean, they, they complained. They said no, because it was very specifically because we can get it. We have car radios that will receive the signal well. We might have home radios that receive the signal well. And it's serving often uh, an older population that may be less facile with using internet radio or, um, you know, who may be able to listen at home but can't listen to internet radio in their cars for all sorts of reasons. Lots of people can't listen to internet radio in their cars. And, and so the long wave uh, service has persisted uh, for quite some time and um, continues to serve, uh, serve that, that listening community. So it's just an, it's an interesting facet uh, in a way that, that we here in North America um, and most of the Americas haven't really experienced that sort of kind of radio, this sort of much longer distance radio that, that kind of everybody at some level has access to. As they, as uh, Longwave has served in much of Europe and parts of uh, parts of Asia and the Middle East. So, in part, also to kind of help uh, f- people uh, in other parts of the world, whether they're part of the Ukrainian diaspora or simply people who who are uh, very concerned about events in Ukraine. Uh, WRMI, which is Radio Miami International, which is a uh, a privately owned shortwave station in the United States. Um, is rebroadcasting Radio Ukraine International every uh, every day now, except Friday uh, from 1200 to 1230 UTC on uh, their 75-70 kilohertz uh, frequency. You know, Radio Ukraine International is no longer on shortwave from Ukraine. And this is something, a process that we've seen play out over the last 20 years or so is a lot of uh, international broadcasters have ended their shortwave service because it's expensive and in many ways, internet radio has come to replace shortwave radio as being a way uh, to communicate both to an international community as well as to a, a diaspora. Um, and and in many ways, you know, uh, shortwave radio can be difficult for some people to use. However, uh, at the same time, it it still has this ability to transcend borders and 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 travel a long distance. And so um, it's interesting to hear that uh, this uh, American broadcaster has decided to sort of pick up the uh, what is otherwise an internet radio broadcast to rebroadcast on on shortwave uh, and six days a week. It's an old saw here on Radio Survivor, but it's worth repeating that uh, we've seen during this conflict inside of Russia, uh, in other, you know, we've seen it before. The internet is easier to control when large state actors want to want to limit the information that people can access. They can turn off parts of the internet. They can turn off the internet, but uh, radio is much harder to 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 cut off. Like. If there is a tower somewhere, the a radio receiver can receive that signal, even if they're hiding uh, somewhere in a basement, even even if they're not supposed to. Uh, there's no way for any uh, any any government to to monitor who's listening to the radio, 
unlike the internet. And there's also, it's much more difficult for them to cut off access within their borders uh, to radio waves, especially these longer waves that Paul's been talking about. Well, and, you know, since you're mentioning broadcast towers, just wanted to point out that Russian uh, projectiles did strike the main radio and television tower in Kiev uh, during the week that we're recording this episode. So, uh, you know, we do see that impact of, you know, communication being taken out on the radio there, too. So many fronts where communication is being restricted. What's interesting is that in in countries outside of North America, principally in the Americas, very often that kind of infrastructure is much more centralized. Um, part of it is is historical. There were fewer stations. They were state run or the infrastructure was state run. Um, certainly in the former uh, Soviet uh, republics, uh, in many cases, there are these television towers, like which is where everything is sited. Um, I've I've been to the uh, television tower in uh, Stockholm, which is not a former Soviet Republic, but has a very similar sort of infrastructure in that way. And in Tallinn, uh, Estonia, where basically almost, you know, a very large percentage of radio and television broadcasts are there uh, because it's built this enormous structure. It's got well, it's well sited to cover a lot of area, but it also sort of makes it a little bit more uh, vulnerable if you will, uh, to attack. Um, in the United States and in Canada, it's more common that uh, stations own their own infrastructure, although certainly um, places like the World Trade Center or the Empire State Building um, in New York City or the former Sears Tower in Chicago are often sites also of many transmitters simply because they're well-sited, right? They're very tall and they can they get you a lot of coverage. But it, it, it usually isn't the case that all stations are, are centralized uh, in, in one place. Here, here in Portland, there is, uh, you know, basically a few towers on a, on a big hill that overlooks downtown, and a lot of transmission equipment is up there as well. But there are also other transmitters scattered about in, in different cities and, and municipalities. So, you know, and I, and I don't know enough, and I haven't done my research to know how... Uh, you know, spread out and uncentralized uh, broadcasts are in Ukraine, but it does seem as though this Kyiv-based uh, tower nevertheless uh, hosts a fairly high concentration uh, of broadcast, both television and radio. I mean, it's just an interesting thing to note the kind of the different ways in which, uh, you know, broadcasting has developed in different countries that has a lot to do in some ways with the political history and political economic history, not because of anything that's uh, specific about radio or television as a broadcast medium, um, you know, but then also, you know, radio broadcasts very easily, as you point out, Eric, cross borders. Um, and, and while there is a history of jamming signals and, and there are, you know, certainly state actors, uh, North Korea comes to mind, for instance, that do still, jam signals uh, that, that may cross its borders. Um, you know, the problem with jamming, of course, is that uh, it is also crosses borders. It's hard to jam, say, signals uh, going into Ukraine without also jamming signals that would go into neighboring countries, uh, not necessarily strictly in, involved in conflict. And so kind of turning the, turning our scope now uh, to Russia, right, which is uh, the aggressor in this conflict we're talking about with Ukraine, you know, um, there's been impacts on, on communications and, and radio there, too. 
Yeah, and and we've been alluding to this a bit. Um, in Russia, there's been restricted access to BBC Russia's online presence, mm. um, as well as Radio Liberty. Um, and Radio Liberty, and, you might need to tell some folks what Radio Liberty is. Yeah, it's it's part of um, it, it's part of the uh, the whole broadcasting group um, that the United States runs overseas. Uh, like Voice of America is part of that group, Radio Free Europe, um, and so Radio Liber Liberty is one of these um, uh, one of these radio stations that broadcasts overseas um, and does not broadcast into the United States, and and so it's. It's news um, produced in the same way that news might be produced in the United States, um, you know, with a freedom of the press sort of focus to it. So that, um, you know, democracy oriented broadcast um, is being restricted in Russia. And, uh, you know, a lot of this has to do with uh, officials in Russia not liking the messages that they're he hearing on Western media, uh, that it goes against um, the perspective they have about this invasion of re Ukraine. Um, and so they're blocking internet access to some of these sites. Um, and then additionally, there's a liberal Russian radio station called Echo Moskvi that was found in 1990. And it was taken off the air earlier this week, the week that we're recording. Uh, because of uh, broadcasting material um, that the government didn't like. And, and then that has led to the board of directors of this radio station voting to actually liquidate the station after they've, they were ordered, after their website was blocked, um, which is kind of chilling that, you know, that you could have the censorship happening, then that could lead you to completely dissolve your organization. Um, and so the Russian military personnel um, were upset with them. They were saying that they were spreading false information about the actions of the Russian military and calling for extremist activity and violence. So the broadcasts of the station were halted soon after um, this call for it to be censored. So that's what's happening in Russia. These are the reports we're hearing. Yeah. And, you know, basically what I understand is inside Russia, it's a very vastly different depiction of this attack on Ukraine in which the government is, of course, not calling it as such. Right. And is has been uh, justifying it uh, that they are. Uh, you know, trying to uh, prevent the ethnic cleansing of uh, Russian diaspora Russians in within Ukraine, and that they're looking to denazify <laughs> Ukraine. Um, you know, and and as well, I understand. You know, it, it also means that uh, there that people are often are, are not hearing about uh, injuries and casualties being sustained by the Russian military in the campaign as well. Right. So it is it is definitely a, a significantly much more censored uh, media environment. And and while uh, I, I do not understand that the Russian government is censoring all media, all Internet media in particular. Right. And, and certainly uh, it's not necessarily jamming um, 
you know, shortwave frequencies. It's, you know, similar to the United States, there's fewer people who are going to be using a shortwave radio at this time, <laughs> at this time, right? I think that this is pretty common in, in most of, uh, of Europe and most of uh, the developed world uh, that folks are, are mostly relying more on, on internet communications, but it is definitely far more controlled than, than what we expect to see um, here in the United States or in, in much of, of Western Europe. Um, you know, and, and, if there are these actions against uh, radio broadcasters, um, you know, it is its own sort of backhanded testimony to the power of radio. Nevertheless, if, you, if you're going to fear it, that it must still have some power and must not yet <laughs> be a dead medium. It's unfortunate that we it, that this is the way it gets sort of expressed or the way in which we, we learn about it. Yeah, definitely the power of radio. I mean, it's it's amazing to me that a station that, you know, was found in 1990 would would go off the air after this. But, you know, it's unclear if if that's a permanent decision or if they might come back. Um, but, yeah, these are some very strong pressures clearly going on in Russia. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a hostile atmosphere and it looks I mean, it has been hostile for for any sort of um, media that counters the the uh, the government in power in in Russia for quite some time, essentially the, the Putin government. So it hasn't been an easy time for much of that last 30 years. It was a fairly brief period at, towards the end of the Soviet Union uh, and in the, in the immediate years following in which there was a, more openness um, with regard to media. It's become much more closed um, in, in that last 30 years. And then, and the interesting thing then is turning back to the United States. There are um, there's Russian radio being heard in the United States still, um, coming directly from uh, the Russian government, um, airing Radio Sputnik. Um, it's actually two stations: uh, uh, WZHF in Washington D.C. and KCXL, and uh, it's in Kansas City, Missouri, um, and they've. Basically, it's under lease agreements with the uh, with the government back uh, Russia Segunda, um, and it's always uh, raised some hackles within the broadcasting community. I don't think many people outside of these communities even realize that that uh, the Russian state broadcasts are in uh, Kansas City and Washington. I don't think that they gain much in the way of ratings. They're not well known, um, but it's interesting that. Even just this past week, the National Association of Broadcasters, which is the uh, the lobby representing uh, the broadcast industry in the United States, fairly well dominated by commercial broadcasters, um, without specifically naming these two stations, uh, came up with a statement sort of also uh, criticizing that these stations are willing to continue to carry uh, Radio Sputnik um, still on. And they're both AM stations there in Washington, D.C., and, and Kansas City. And, you know, I believe the news uh, came out uh, yesterday as we go to air. So it'd be March 3rd that Russia Today, RT as it's known, which is a um, they it's a television network, 24 hour um, news network sponsored by the Russian government um, has had RT America. You know, so it's a Russian it's a uh, Russian sponsored but American English language service that's existed here in the United States for quite a few years. Uh, just announced that they were shutting down operations immediately uh, because they lost their uh, largest um, distribution hub. So um, principally, uh, it, it could be found online and then also, though, was available on DirecTV. 
which is uh, satellite TV. And uh, AT&T, which owns DirecTV, announced that they were removing RT from their lineup, basically, you know, depriving uh, RT America of most of its of its easy audience in the United States. So so there is a sort of two way street as well, which I think is always uh, I think raises people's concerns sometimes in the United States. Right. Because we have. You know, we formally have the First Amendment, right, which is a protection of free speech, a protection from government action against free speech, right? And it is very specifically about government action. But then, then it tends to um, tends to make us have this uh, larger kind of ethos of free speech, where where which, which we which obviously has been the subject of much conflict with regard to internet platforms, deplatforming you know, people, whether it be Twitter or Facebook or YouTube. Um, and, and certainly it can raise hackles, even sort of an action like uh, DirecTV deciding to take Russia Today or RT America off of the off of their platform. Understanding, of course, that, you know, DirecTV is permitted to take off any programming that they wish to take off as, as part of their platform, right? But it that, you know, we often, I think, in, in the um, United States have difficulty distinguishing the difference of sort of the, a private uh, company, even if it is publicly traded, um, and the actions of government and understanding the difference between sort of uh, editorial control and censorship. And so I've seen some criticism come out, though not a lot, I think, <laughs> by and large, um, you know, I haven't seen too many people air too much criticism of, of, of DirecTV for taking RT America off their service Um but, uh, you know, often it means we're walking this line kind of, of of trying to remind ourselves what is the difference between um, sort of private speech and, and uh, government control, where the government comes into control. I, I wanted to add another sort of, um, you know, tidbit here about um, the invasion of Ukraine from a college radio perspective um, and let people know that the College Radio Foundation reached out to college radio participants in Ukraine mm. to check in, see how they were doing. And um, they also had people from radio stations in the United States and I think around the world record messages of support that they mm -hmm. sent to these students in, in Ukraine. And there ended up being kind of a back and forth. And so... Um, the students in Ukraine then sent messages back that were edited into a short piece and their radio stations. Now there are college radio stations all over the world that are going to play this three minute piece that has messages from these students talking about the situation there and asking for um, people to be, you know, paying attention and supporting what's going on. And then, um, and then following that, the students in Ukraine put together another message in multiple languages asking for help and and saying uh kind of reiterating the their message that ukraine is part of the european community and they want people to recognize that so i thought that was an interesting project that college radio is doing and i i believe probably the week that we're airing this episode um there may be an effort by college radio stations around the world to play some of these messages on air mm -hmm. at the same time 
That's great. Well, we should definitely try. And when we know more, we can, we'll, we'll put it up uh, and let people know via our Twitter, twitter.com slash Radio Survivor. And we'll try to get it up and uh, listen at our website, radiosurvivor.com, which, of course, is where you can find this podcast. Um, it's there at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And if you have any comments or uh, questions for us, feel free to send them along podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And I just want to say personally, as we talk about this, it's it's a little difficult to sort of uh, talk about this. Uh, not I know uh, objectively is not even the right word, but to be sort of um, when we're talking about this conflict in, in Ukraine, it's difficult not to not to feel emotional, I think, uh, and understanding what's going on. I, I feel somewhat of a personal connection. Um, you know, my partner and I both know people in Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, my heritage is Estonian. My father's family comes from Estonia. That's why I've been to Estonia and Estonia, you know, borders Russia and went through many, many, many decades of Russian domination, both um, under the czars and and under Soviet occupation. And so tensions in, in Estonia are also very, very high right now. Uh, you know, they, unlike Ukraine, uh, Estonia is a member of NATO, right? But um, which ostensibly affords uh, the nation some protection uh, from its ally with, you know, coming from its allies in, in Europe and, of course, elsewhere in the United States. Um, and, you know, regardless of what some people may may think about uh, NATO, but it, it does, you know, it is definitely uh, put people on edge there as well. And, and which they've been on edge for quite some time and worrying about, you know, what this may mean for them, what, you know, what both the, just the Putin regime and its and it's uh, especially in the last 10 years or so, but as well as was what this what this means, um, what the, the willingness of Russia to attack uh, Ukraine, um, you know, with without pro- provocation. Right. With with basically a, a drummed up provocation, you know, and, and uh, certainly um, like many other nations uh, in in Europe, uh, Estonia is doing their best to take, you know, to take refugees and also permit uh, Ukrainians currently living in Estonia or staying in Estonia to uh, allow them to stay as long as they need to during this uh, during this tough time. Very tough time. Well, this is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. We may lighten things up if we're allowed here a little bit, because um, I wanted to mention a type of radio we've we've been tracking for a lot of years, uh, have come to be called Franken-FMs. And these are radio stations that are actually TV stations, but they can be heard on the radio dial down at the far left end of the dial, uh, around about uh, 87.7 FM. And it's not by design, but, you know, uh, f- folks who are uh, who can remember analog television uh, may remember that there were times in which you could hear the audio from a channel six there at the left end of your dial. Well, analog uh, low power TV stations were permitted to stay on the air uh, after the big changeover in 2009, when most television stations went digital. And some of those stations were on channel six. But of course, most stations switched over to digital. There was less call for analog and and many people were not looking to analog TV. But realizing that they could be heard on the FM dial, um, many of these low power TV stations operating on Channel 6 stayed analog and basically converted themselves into radio stations. Uh, The one that is probably most well known is in Chicago, MeTV FM. 
which is again a Channel Six TV station uh, that stayed on the air as uh, analog and is functioned as an, as a radio station so successfully that they showed up on the Nielsen radio uh, charts. Like they actually got ratings um, ahead of many traditional uh, regular radio stations. However, uh, this past year in 2021, all those analog stations, even the low power ones, had to convert to digital, which meant that they were going to lose their radio signal because the digital signal is not one that can be picked up on an FM receiver, except then uh, the owner behind MeTV FM uh, as well as another station in California, petitioned the FCC for special temporary authority to try out keeping an analog radio signal alongside of a digital TV signal. And the FCC granted this request, and it's basically experimental by calling it special temporary authority. So they don't have a, an ongoing license to do this, but they have uh, they have the permission for the FCC to try it out. And as part of that, they actually have to air different programming on the audio than on the digital video. So it's not, so they have a digital video signal, which is their regular television signal. Then there is a separate audio signal that's analog um, uh, during that time. And also during this time, they can't sell their station, <laughs> which is interesting. So they have to hold on to that license uh, because um, basically the idea is that you're not going to try and sell to somebody who's going to use it as a radio station, right? That you're, you're testing something else because they said to the FCC, we've built this business and it will go away. And as a result, now there's about six-ish stations now across the country who are operating under this special temporary authority going now about nine months after the shutdown was otherwise going to going to take these stations off the air. And, and it's interesting to note because I, I wouldn't have expected this. This was a surprise for me even as after having watched this because um, – Many uh, traditional broadcasters uh, do not support this <laughs> and, and, and have uh, looked askance at these so-called Franken-FMs since they began and, and certainly petitioned the FCC for them not to be given an additional lease on life uh, beyond the, uh, the shutdown of the, um, of the digital of the analog service, NPR being chief among them. All right. And, and part of that we can understand is that at 87.7 FM, that's uh, not part of the FM dial, but beginning at 88 to 92 in the United States, that's strictly reserved for non-commercial radio. But the stations operating uh, on channel six television or 87.7 FM are not currently required to be non-commercial. So, so most of them actually are operating in a commercial capacity as a commercial radio station. And so that's at least one object, objection. And as well, you know, another objection that's been raised is, well, if we're going to make this radio, well, then why not open it up to everyone, right? Why not turn it into part of the FM band and let anyone and anywhere uh, apply and, and get a radio station at this frequency, which has otherwise been off the table because it would interfere with Channel 6 television. I think that's certainly the other argument, rather than making it just sort of um, this legacy service that, that, that the small number of broadcasters are allowed to hold on to. But this would not be the only case, right? As we set up at the top of the hour, um, there's the Class D uh, super low power uh, non-commercial radio stations. There's still a few on the air in the United States, even though the, the service was officially ended in 1978. And when that happened in 1978, the FCC told um, gave those stations a period of time in which they could upgrade to a full power license, after which they said, 
if you don't upgrade, uh, you'll, you'll be a secondary service. Um, meaning that, uh, if someone else comes along and with a full power, uh, request that would infringe on your service, you would have to either accept interference or give up altogether. Um, and, and yet over this time, uh, now going into, uh, you know, 42 years later, um, actually longer than that. Uh, but, uh, 44 years later, um, there's still a few of these stations that have managed to stay on the air as a legacy service, including uh, now X-Ray FM here in uh, Portland, Oregon, which uh, it, which inherited that license from Reed College. Yes, which originally gave the license back to the FCC, which has happened to a lot of Class D licenses mm-hmm. because stations would have, you know, Class D, many of these stations had a hard time really reaching their audiences at all you know they were dealing with a lot of interference and and so that was happening at reed and so they gave the license back to the fcc but there were some crafty engineers who were like wait a minute might you consider asking the fcc to reconsider that and and return the license and then donate it to us because we think we can figure out a way to make the class d actually work in portland and that's what happened a yeah, little story of you know resurrection. <laughs> well, and and this is a great example of how it's important to kind of have a nuanced view of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. Right? There are many people who often think that the FCC is 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 a is sort of a cop, right? And only there to to call foul and write tickets and kick people off the air and issue fines, right? But it is also the case that the FCC is there to promote radio amongst many other things. Right. And they're in the job of there being radio stations, not taking stations off the air. And there is opportunity there where it seems like, you know, working with uh, the staff of the media bureau, um, you, you know, you can do things to help keep a station on the air, not only be in a situation of it just disappearing because, um, you know, and that, and that it is the, the FCC that, that creates licenses and gives away licenses and construction permit. And, and they have a big interest in keeping stations on the air with the flip side being within certain rules and parameters and, and, and in the public interest and not, you know, creating, uh, problems for other stations or the public at large or the FCC. But, you know, it always goes to that much more, uh, I think, nuanced view, right? And to not, and, and, and also that goes for folks who are in radio themselves, right? Who may, who be, who may be running college or community stations and worry about an FCC fine. Like it is the case that you should be attentive to the rules and obey them. Uh, because that is the condition of having a license, but also understand that, you know, the FCC can can be a resource right there uh, because they are interested in the stations that they've they've put on the air um, staying on the air. <laughs> you know, they also have put in a lot of effort, um, as they will do probably this year where we're looking forward to another low power FM opportunity. Um, the date is not yet set. Um, this past fall uh, was an opportunity for full power licenses. It was an, a window for NCE licenses, non-commercial educational licenses, and um, 
The commission has been in the process of issuing those construction permits now for brand new, full-powered, non-commercial uh, stations all over the country. Many of them will be community radio stations. I, I want to I want to note, and we'll have to we'll have to follow up and get some more data on that to tell folks about um, all the new exciting stations that are going to be going on the air. But then again, we're going to have an opportunity for new low-power FM stations, which are um, strictly non-commercial as well. That will be coming up later this year, and we'll definitely do our best to let people know. Uh, when that window opens and and what they can do if they think they might want to uh, take advantage of that. Well, then hopefully, you know, we we covered the last low power FM window very extensively on Radio Survivor. And it was so fun for all of us to be paying attention to all the different interesting organizations that were applying for licenses. And there were, you know, competitive situations and, you know, particularly in urban areas. Mm-hmm. And it was a real... It was really exciting to watch um, all of this energy. So I'll be very curious to see with this next round what we see. Yeah, you know, there will be fewer urban opportunities, but not necessarily zero, um, simply because, you know, radio dials continue to to get more and more crowded. And there are lots of other sorts of stations competing for slots that might go to a low power FM. Uh, but that doesn't mean there will be no opportunity uh, as well. You know, it's it's unlikely, you know, we've declared that that last window, which was in 2013, um, initiated the largest expansion of community radio in history. And I still stand by that remark. Um, I'm not certain that a 2022 window will will have quite the the scope that we'll see simply as many stations period go on the air, but it might go down as the second largest expansion. We can see, you know, there, you know, and, 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 and in some cases there are, you know, some low power FM stations, um, you know, that may be community stations, but maybe uh, religious, maybe public, maybe uh, college stations that also uh, haven't been able to make a go of it. And that time and some of those stations, some of those frequencies, there'll be an opportunity for them to be reallocated to to another organization. Um, so, yeah, it's and, and why it's so interesting and fascinating, Jennifer, right, is I think it's always important to point out that that as radio licenses go, low power FM stations are it's easier to obtain those licenses. So it definitely lowers that barrier to entry. And it means many organizations that may not have the resources to operate, you know, a 20 kilowatt, 20,000 watt full-time non-commercial radio station might have the resources to operate one operating at 100 watts, right? With with more simple technical uh, facilities. Um, and also the FCC makes it easier to apply, right, as well. So a lot of uh, the kind of difficult engineering work that's required for full power license is not required for a low power license. So again, lowering that barrier to entry. So it kind of really broadens uh, the t- the number and type of organizations uh, that can take advantage of it and, and, and adds to the fun. Yeah. I mean, we saw a wide array of nonprofits applying, many people who didn't have any sort of radio experience before. Mm-hmm. And we saw how people teamed up with you know, with people who did have radio experience. So in some cases, we saw competing applicants join together to kind of, you know, bring together um, both of their sets of skills in order, you know, yeah, to and they'll a split the time station. sometimes as well, right? So they'll, you know, yeah. it'll be one station half the day and another station half the day, ostensibly. Yeah. 
No, it's fascinating. And, and, you know, and the radio dials in so many communities are so much richer now because of that, you know, so many, especially, uh, you know, mid-size and large cities have multiple community radio stations where once maybe they had one and in some cases didn't have any. I think of Chicago, uh, Illinois, as a, as a particular example where, um, you know, there's the Loyola radio station, Loyola University in Chicago has a radio station that they've operated as a as a community radio station, but at different levels of sort of openness to the community. In some cases, it's been very much operated as a community station. In other cases, they've sort of taken it back and it's much more of a college station, right? But now there are, and that was really the only community radio station in Chicago, um, operating as such. And now there are several operating throughout the community with both music and public affairs focuses. Um, and that, you know, simply wouldn't have been possible prior to, uh, to that 2013 window. Um, so yeah, it, it will, we'll continue to keep you updated and let you know what your opportunities are. We know that organizations like common frequency where I currently serve, uh, on the board, as well as Prometheus Radio Project, uh, we'll be doing a lot to help, um, you know, organizations, especially those uh, serving uh, underserved communities, uh, and especially communities underserved by radio and, and broadcast media. They'll be doing a lot to try and and uh, make this process uh, um, as open to people who want to put real community radio on the air or real college radio neck as well. But uh, that wasn't on our agenda. <laughs> behind the scenes but i wanted to make note of that as it occurred to me as we're as we're talking about these uh, franken fms here um that there are other opportunities and then you know i noted uh it was interesting that um spin magazine which i guess still exists but principally is an online uh enterprise published an article about ice fm at mcmurdo radio uh, i'm sorry mcmurdo station in antarctica which I thought was sort of interesting only because that's a station sort of near and dear to our heart. Uh, and would, because we've had the opportunity to, um, to interview, you know, the station engineer and learn much more of it a few years ago. Yeah. We had a virtual, we had a virtual visit to Antarctica, which was so exciting. And, you know, that was sparked by, I was watching an episode of Anthony Bourdain's show and he visited the radio station and I was like, I want to visit that radio station. What is going on there? I could see there were vintage records. And so we had an amazing conversation. Um, so yeah, Paul, I'm glad you pointed out that spin, you know, did this profile. They had some photos and they talked about the difficulty of getting in touch with them over, over zoom because of connectivity, which is interesting because I think we had, we had a video conversation, so oh, we didn't. It was just audio. It was just audio. I think we were so many using years ago. The app called Skype. Uh -huh. so that's how long ago it was for us. Oh my goodness! Amazing how we all get into our Zoom yeah. heads. Yeah, because uh, uh, that that is one of my favorite episodes. It would have re-aired on the radio in the last three months, but it's a pre-pandemic episode, so it would require a little bit of. Um, you know, preamble from us as hosts to let the listeners know that this is one of our favorite interviews, but it takes place in a world before uh, the COVID-19 COVID pandemic, uh, you know, changed so much. And it would be weird to have an interview with the scientist in Antarctica, all, all about their lives uh, at the station and all the precautions they take be living there in the climate, but uh, never mentioning the pandemic, which I'm sure changed 
change things a little bit in Antarctica. Maybe not that much uh, once they it, got there, right? Yeah, I think it reached there late in the later in the game than in right. some places. Well, um, because over the winter uh, in Antarctica, Antarctica, the the team there basically are they're isolated. There, there is yeah. uh, you. You don't come and go. There's no one coming in, and their uh, and their winter, of course, and and the at the uh, southern end of the world um, is the opposite of the winter here in in yeah. uh, nor- but, in the northern hemisphere. But we learned that that radio station, which broadcasts to the workers who live there at that uh, at McMurdo Station at this at this base uh, in Antarctica on FM uh, radio on, on real yeah, FM, they, yeah. They listen. They listen to the radio station all throughout the, you know, the the small region where they live. They listen to it in their trucks while they're working, as well as um, it's a radio station that is that is staffed by volunteers who work on the base. So so the radio station functions much as community radio does down here in 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 the rest of civilization, where where it's a it's an outlet for people to go be creative and to share their love of music and to and to communicate with their the members of their community but up there in Antarctica down there in Antarctica um that community is uh very very small and 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 they and they're not on the internet and so, they're not on yeah. the internet because right the internet is is hard to come by uh but it, they have it, some some really fascinating radio uh vinyl that was that was I think my favorite part because uh, their vinyl yeah. collection goes back to the to the beginning of a sort of military, yeah, uh, armed, military radio vinyl collection. Some yeah, uh, armed forces radio stuff, and I mean you can see in the spin article they have some photos where you could see the very generic sleeves that are kind of to me sometimes a telltale sign of oh there's something really interesting oh right in right there. because it, it it was such a small production that that they don't even haven't even printed a sleeve right it's just uh, uh, the generic green or white sleeve yeah yeah so the article to me paul that article was way too short and yes. like, there were so many more questions and i mean and, and our interview was much uh, more yes. extensive than that article um you know, I'm ex- I'm excited that they that they did the article, but um, and and I did learn some things because I I didn't fully appreciate the fact of the DJs coming from, you know, people holding all these different roles in McMurdo. I thought that was really an interesting perspective from the piece. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and we, if you would like to hear our original interview, uh, we'll link to it in our show notes. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. It's actually, we'll have links to just about everything we're talking about here today. If you want to follow up or, or check our references or, or learn more, that's at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. And then, so Jennifer, you've had some, um, you've been having some audio experiences. <laughs> Is that what we call them? <laughs> out in the world, out, out in the Bay uh. Area. Yeah, out in the wild. Well, and sometimes at home. Um, I went to my first show in two years. Um, I've been, for years now, I've been hearing about Audium in San Francisco, which um, originally was billed as a, a theater of sound. And it it started in the 1960s. So, I mean, it has this long, long history. And they just started this artist residency there. And that prompted me to finally go and check out a show. And so they had three sound artists compose pieces um, for the space. And it's a theater where uh, you go into the small theater. There are 42 seats and they're nearly 
200 speakers um, throughout the room, like in the ceiling and the walls and hmm. the floor, and you listen in complete darkness. So like not like the darkness at a regular concert. This is like pitch black. You can't see anything. Um, so it's, it's this really trippy um, experience, you know, kind of like listening to radio where, you know, you kind of can go on this mental sort of hallucinogenic journey while you're listening to the sounds. And it was, it was really cool. And in addition to that, the, the artist did um, physical piece, like sound sculptures in the lobby. So, so you did have a visual component um, mm -hmm. as you're entering the show and during intermission and afterwards. Um, Victoria Shen was one of the artists and she does a lot of work with records. So she had these colorful almost like tie-dye looking records that were spinning and, and there were sound projection or sound. There were um, projections in the room from some of the other artists um, and film and other sculptures. So it was cool. I mean, it was kind of like old days of San Francisco feeling and, <laughs> and also great to just, you know, get out and, and have a very immersive sound experience. And that is Audium in San Francisco. That's the name of it. A-U-D-I-U-M. Yes. Very cool. I had a similar experience that was not in person. Um, there's there's a group um, called World According to Sound. And, and during the pandemic, they've been producing these audio pieces to consume at home. And they send you a blindfold. So it's kind of like Audium in a way. But they send you a blindfold and, and have you listen without distractions at home to these pieces, um, you know, where they want you to just like attune to the sounds. And, and so I took in a couple of those shows and one had a COVID theme where it was all about the sounds of COVID and the sounds that we missed during COVID. That was really interesting. Um, and then there was another episode that, that had to do with sounds that were entering the public domain. So to me, I was all over that because it was basically a history of sound kind of episode where we heard very early recordings um, and, you know, had historical timelines, heard lots of old cylinders. And so I was just like, you know, this was designed exactly for me, um, but it was similar. So this, um, you know, I attended this at home a few weeks before going to Audium. So it was kind of like, those two experiences were nice bookends and, and the world according to sound experience at home was also felt kind of like this self care, you know, that we're all supposed to be doing right now. We're taking time to just like lock your door, close your family out of the room and just do something for pure pleasure. Like as if you were going to see a show in person. Um, so that was really needed and welcome for me at that point. So a nice like thing to do before I actually ventured out to see a show after two years was to do one at home like that. Yeah. It sounds like a nice, I like, I like how the blindfold uh, is um, to me. That's a, that's a, that's a message to, to not look at your phone, to not scroll mm -hmm. the news today or for at least this one hour while you're listening, uh, listening to this piece of art, the sound work. Yeah, so much of our lives are so distracted, you know, and that's just the way we interact <laughs> with the world these days. And yeah, to have these reminders, you know, same with Audium, you had to turn off all your devices because that would have completely ruined the experience if 
you know, you saw flashing lights on somebody's phone going off in the pitch black. 